0: Amen. Well, we will uh, we'll get started this morning with uh, we're talking about ethics. So we've moved out of talking about um, just kind of uh, soteriology and the doctrine of salvation, and then moved into Christian living. What does it mean? What does it look like for us to live as Christians uh, in the midst of the world? And so uh, we have uh, spent one week on ethics. We're spending a second week. On ethics, and uh, as we get started, just want to uh, remind you, in case you weren't here last week, we're trying something new. That is, uh, at the end, instead of having people kind of raise their hands and doing Q and A like that, instead, giving you an opportunity during the lesson. If at any point uh, you have any questions, you can text that number and uh, and text your question. Please put it in the form of a question, like Jeopardy, um, but uh, and then make it in a sentence that is somewhat readable. So we got a couple last week that. we're just like uh, divorce? Question mark. Well, we don't know exactly what you're asking in that uh, context. So, uh, write us questions. Send us those in, and then at the end we will uh, we'll come and uh, do those uh, together. So let's talk about ethics, and in particular, kind of the, the the practice of ethics. We're taking what Zach talked about last week in terms of laying this philosophical foundation, and then we really want to put some flesh on it, and, uh, and so we're kind of uh, adding to that uh, skeleton and making this into something that's a little more uh, applicable and practical uh, for us. So I want to begin by just saying, what is ethics? How would you answer that question? Someone ask you, what is ethics? What was that? Right and wrong. That's, that's great. That's a great answer. Anybody have any other answers? Basic code of conduct, conduct. Yeah. So ethics is basically that. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, a way of, uh, of living rightly. It's a way of kind of discerning and therefore applying the principles that you see uh, as Christians, the principles that we see in, uh, in the Bible. And so the word ethics comes from uh, a word uh, ethos. And uh, so think of the ethos of a, of a company. What is the ethos of a company? What is that? It's kind of the spirit, kind of the culture, kind of the uh, character of the company. Well, likewise, that's what e- an ethos is for us. It's, it's our character. It's, uh, it's our culture. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about ethics. It's kind of the fundamental spirit or character uh, of a person. So ethics is really any study that uh, attempts to answer the question, what does God require us to do and what attitudes does He require of us uh, to have today? What does God require us to do, and what attitudes and behaviors does He require us to have today? With regard to any situation, that's the goal of ethics, is to take this sort of a question... What does God require me to do and how does He require me to do it? And apply it to any situation that you might face in, uh, in life. And so you'll see this overlap between ethics and morality. In fact, uh, depending on how you're using those, those could actually be synonymous, that uh, morality uh, is dealing with mores, these cultural norms these uh, mores, these binding customs, uh, these, uh, these binding behaviors and, and that kind of stuff. And so, in other words, ethics is really about making moral decisions, or from our perspective as Christians, making Christian decisions, making biblical decisions. That's the goal of ethics. The goal of ethics is to say, what does the Bible tell me to do in any sort of given situation? Taking uh, the Bible as our filter and then applying that filter to any situation that you might face uh, in life. And so the goal for us as Christians, as we consider ethics, is really trying to avoid two extremes. The first one be, would be to allow uh, what the Bible prohibits. And so, uh, so you can think of examples like sexual morality or drunkenness or murder or whatever it might be. But the second uh, extreme that we want to avoid is to prohibit what the Bible allows. So for instance, the fact that the Bible is going to prohibit sexual morality doesn't mean that we should therefore prohibit sexual intimacy within marriage. Or the fact that the Bible is going to prohibit drunkenness doesn't mean that we want to prohibit moderate drinking. The fact that the Bible is going to prohibit murder doesn't mean that we should prohibit eating meat, as if killing animals is murder, no matter what PETA says, unless you're eating people or something like that. And uh, so that's kind of the challenge uh, for us as Christians in regards to ethics, is avoiding these two extremes, to uh, allow what the Bible prohibits, or to prohibit what the Bible uh, allows. And so everything that we do is ethical. Every single decision that you ever make in life is ethical. The decision as far as, uh, you know, whether you're going to go to church or not, the decision as to uh, how you're going to raise your kids, everything that you do is ethical, and so uh, we saw last week, we saw a number of examples of, uh, of sort of ethical uh, quandaries uh, of these uh, ethical situations that you might find yourself, and a lot of the classic examples that we might talk about as far as ethics are these examples that you probably will never find yourself in, all right? Probably the overwhelming majority of us are not going to just suddenly want to go through buds and become a Navy SEAL, and then you're going to find yourself in a situation where you have to either uh, kill this young shepherd boy or you have to uh, uh, potentially kind of lose all of your your fellow soldiers or whatever it might be. Probably most of us are not going to uh, find ourselves in a situation Uh, like some Germans would have found themselves in during World War II, where they have to face the moral, ethical quandary of whether or not to lie about hiding Jews or whatever it might be. And so you have these sort of classic examples, but uh, the overwhelming majority of ethical decisions that we face... Uh, are not these uh, complex, controversial sort of things. They are uh, things that kind of infringe upon our lives all the time. Again, everything that we do is ethical. And so, you see all these situations that you may not personally face, but also matter in regards to how you think or how you vote uh, or whatever it might be. And so, what does the Bible say about capital punishment? How should we think about that? By the way, Zach will actually be talking about that a little bit uh, today as we uh, walk through Romans 13 in the sermon What does the Bible say about things like just war? What does the Bible say about uh, immigration? What does the Bible say about abortion? What does the Bible say uh, about uh, uh, types of economic policy or whatever uh, it might be? And then kind of going down another level from that, the the topic of ethics would deal with these situations that you're going to face on a daily basis. And so, contraceptive use. Can you use contraceptives? And if so... Well, which ones? Or gambling. What is gambling? Is gambling ever appropriate? Is playing the stock market gambling? Is playing poker where you have some sort of… Uh, you're relying on math and skill, is that the same? Uh, drinking. Can you drink or should you invo- avoid it entirely? How much is too much? These are ethical questions. Drug use. Can you smoke cigarettes or weed? and Why or why not? What about painkillers? Racism. What is racism? How do we uh, kind of assess and distinguish what is a racism or lying? You might not face this sort of Jew question that we talked about, but you might face another situation that's tricky. Is it ever uh, appropriate to lie? Is it a lie? Is it a moral failure on your part? Are you being unethical whenever you hide a surprise party from your uh, spouse? These are the kinds of questions that ethics are dealing with, questions about divorce and remarriage. Or sexual morality? Is is this particular activity forbidden or uh, even encouraged? What about same-sex attraction or pornography or adultery? Can I roll through a stop sign? Can I exceed the speed limit? Do I have to pay taxes? Again, we'll deal with some of these things in the sermon today. What do I do when I have a conflict with another believer? Whenever I die, should I have my family cremate me or bury me? All of these sorts of things, again, are ethical. And so uh, the point is that you shouldn't think of ethics as just being this philosophical thing that's de- that deals with these terms that you may or may not understand, like pragmatism or utilitarianism, or guides that you may or may not really be familiar with, like Kant or Aristotle or whatever it might be. You need to understand that everything that you face in life is ethical. And, uh, and so the goal... That we want to get to is not really just ethical thinking, that's really just a, main, a means to an end. The goal is ethical or moral living, living which is in accordance with God's, God's uh, revealed will. And this should matter to us. The, the, the question of ethics should matter to us because the Bible is going to constantly say over and over and over again that obedience to God's revealed will is going to bring blessing and disobedience is going to br- bring consequences. Now, sometimes that blessing, sometimes those consequences are eschatological. That is that we don't experience them in this particular life. We experience them in the afterlife. Uh, But it is a a truth that obedience always brings blessing. Disobedience always brings consequences. And so we need to know what the Bible says in regards to these ethical decisions. And uh, and so ethical living matters because blessings and obedience and, and, uh, and disobedience and consequences matters, which means that ethical thinking is going to matter. We can't live ethically if we don't think ethically. How can you know what God requires if you don't know what He has revealed? After all, we've talked about this before, that every cult is going to quote Scripture. Every false teacher is going to quote Scripture. The guy who's cheating on his spouse is going to quote Scripture about how you shouldn't judge him. The wife who wants a divorce is going to quote Scripture. And on and on we can go, and so theology is really going to be this bridge that is going to uh, that we have to cross in order to uh, arrive at moral, uh, biblical, ethical thinking and moral biblical ethical uh, living. And so last week Zach walked us through various theories. This week we want to take some of those theories and give sort of practical uh, uh, principles and advice for thinking and living. Uh, ethically, Again, if it helps you to think of this not merely as ethically living, but moral living, uh, we're, we're talking about thinking and living morally. Uh, if that helps you, then feel free to, uh, to call it that. And one of the things that you'll notice, uh, unlike most of the, uh, our um, uh, theological equipping classes, uh, on your little handout there, you don't have a whole lot of Scripture. And one of the reasons for that is because uh, what ethics is attempting to do is really ethics is a form of hermeneutics. What's hermeneutics? It's, it's how to study the Bible, right? It's, a, it's the way to interpret the Bible. And uh, so it wouldn't do any good to just simply give you a bunch of scriptures because ethics is really dealing with hermeneutics. How do we interpret the Bible? And so you'll see a lot of overlap as we talk about some of the principles uh, for um, assessing ethics, are the same as you would get if you were doing, like, a how to study the Bible seminar or something like that. But I want to begin, before we get to principles, I want to begin with uh, just how do we prepare ourselves to think eth- ethically? How do we prepare ourselves to think ethically? and to live ethically. And so uh, I just want to give you some helpful hints. If you want to live morally, if you want to think ethically, these are some things that you need to uh, saturate your life in. So the first one is uh, a a sort of a discipline of reading your Bible, that you immerse yourself in the Word day after day after day after day after day. Make this a rhythm and a routine uh, to your life. Make it a habit, not just a habit, not just some sort of empty habit, but a habit uh, nonetheless. It's kind of like moving overseas and immersing yourself in a foreign language. The more that you get out of the house, uh, the more that you begin to interact with the culture that is around you, the more that you will begin to understand that culture and that language. That's kind of like speaking Bible. The more that you read the Bible, the more that you immerse yourself, the more that you saturate yourself in the Scriptures, the more that it will just begin to influence you, even on a subconscious sort of level. And so that's the first thing that you can do uh, to prepare yourself to think ethically. So in other words, don't simply wait until you're forced with some sort of ethical quandary In order to study what the Bible says about that, that you need to have this rhythm and routine and habit in your life where you're already prepared because you're thinking biblically, you're thinking Christianly because you're so exposed uh, to God's Word on a regular uh, basis. So you can have the habit, you can have the habit of reading the Bible and not be holy. Uh, I think we've all probably met people before who were really familiar with the Bible and yet they didn't live ethically. They didn't think ethically. You can have the habit and not be holy, but I've never really met anybody who was really holy that didn't have the habit. So you can have the habit and not be holy, but you can't be holy and not have the habit. And uh, so that's the first thing, uh, for you to have this rhythm and routine and habit in your life where you are uh, constantly reading your Bible in order to discern uh, God's will and to understand the way that He speaks uh, to us through His Word. A second thing that you can do to prepare yourself to think ethically is to study theology, not just reading your Bible, but actually going through the hard work of systematizing it, going through the hard work of asking, what does, how does this passage relate to this other passage, and how have others thought of this? So again, cults, false teachers, whatever it might be, they're reading the Bible, but they aren't reading it correctly. Uh, so it's important for you to learn good Bible study methods and, uh, and hermeneutics. Uh, again, why is that important? Why is it important for you to know hermeneutics? Why is it important for you to know theology? That's like asking, why is it important for you to know what the right thing is? Why is it important for you not to sin? Why is it important for you to pursue holiness, whatever it, uh, it might be? That's, again, the goal. The goal of ethical thinking is ethical living. This is not some sort of abstract, esoteric, philosophical thing uh, that you just learn about in college or whatever it might be. This is, we're dealing with uh, issues of, uh, of Christian living. And, uh, and so you don't know what sin is. You don't know what the right thing is uh, without uh, theology. A couple of examples of that. So uh, you're doing the work of ethics. You're doing the work of hermeneutics whenever you answer the questions. Can Christians eat bacon? Can Christians eat pork? How is that an ethical question? Well, it's a question that deals with the relationship between the old uh, Mosaic covenant and the new covenant today. And the way that you answer the question, if you're wrong, then you are being led into sin. So if I were to say that you can eat bacon today and I'm wrong, then I'm actually encouraging you to do something that God has uh, prohibited. But likewise, if you say, no, we can't do it today, and you're wrong, then you're encouraging someone toward uh, sin. Or the question of baptism, should you baptize infants or should you only baptize uh, those who give some sort of profession of faith? Again, if you're wrong, the consequences of that are that you're leading someone into sin. And so we could do this with every sort of ethical example that you face. So we see the the importance of not merely reading your Bible and having this rhythm or routine, but also studying theology, doing the hard work of uh, interpreting Scripture correctly. So theology is never the enemy. You might have maybe grown up in a church or in a context where that was presented as if sort of theology was just about being some sort of ivory tower, egghead theologian or whatever it might be. And theology is never the enemy. Even if you were to say that the way that Parkway does theology isn't helpful for you, or the way that our staff and elders in particular, the way that we teach theology is not helpful for you, you still couldn't say that theology is not helpful that theology is essential, it's beautiful, it's good in and of itself. And so that's the second thing that you need to do uh, to think and live ethically is to study uh, theology, to take all of the discordant things that God says in His Word and to bring them together and, uh, and understand how Scripture interprets Scripture. third thing you need to do is mortify sin and vivify uh, the Spirit. We talked about this in sanctification, so you can go back and listen. It was just a few weeks ago as we talked about that. One of the things the Bible says is that uh, the more that you pursue sin, the more that you chase after sin, uh, the more that you uh, allow sin to kind of fester and grow in your life. Uh, the Bible says some of the consequences of that uh, is that you have this seared conscience, and that as a, as a part of this seared conscience, you also have this deceived mind. In other words, the more that you're cherishing and treasuring sin, the less able you are to see clearly, the less able you are to think clearly. And so what uh, would have seemed to be a, a classic sort of example of that is, uh, is uh, people who expose themselves uh, to uh, pornography and continue on in this pattern and this pattern and this pattern three years, five years, ten years down the line after doing this. All of a sudden they are looking at things and enjoying things that would have made them sick years ago. What's the, why is that? Because they have this seared mind, this seared conscience. So sin is going to twist and distort the truth. It's like one of those mirror, mirrors at a carnival. You ever see those mirrors? And it, uh, it, because of the shape of the mirror, it distorts your image. That's what sin is going to do to you, that you cannot see yourself correctly, you cannot read Scripture correctly, you cannot understand God correctly. And so if you chase after sin, you'll begin to justify it. It will begin to make sense to you. Sin, which is intended to be this irrational, foolish, sort of futile, vain thing, is going to all of a sudden begin to make sense to you, and you're going to begin to justify it. And so we talked about if your mind is renewed, in Romans chapter uh, 12, uh, as we talk about that uh, the way that we're transformed is by the renewing of the mind. If the renewal of the mind is going to lead to uh, an an understanding and uh, an appreciation of truth and beauty, then the opposite is true As well, that you you become unable to perceive truth or uh, beauty. So, one of the things that you need to do if you want to think ethically or live ethically is you need to do everything in your power to mortify sin and vivify the spirit. Again, go back and listen to our teachings on uh, mortification and vivification from a a few weeks back uh, for more on that. A fourth thing that you need to do is ask others if something is right. Ask others if something is right, that you were not intended to read Scripture in a vacuum. One of the most important things that I think that we try to impress upon you is the importance of reading Scripture in the context of community. Uh, I I think one of the things that is a bit unique about Parkway is that we love theology and we exalt theology and we talk about theology. One of the dangers for us, though, is that we would do so in a way that is individualistic, that is kind of isolationist, and so uh, you are not intended to read the Scripture in a vacuum. Our modern uh, preoccupation with opinion and feeling and uh, sentences that start with, I think, and all of that is completely foreign to Scripture. Not merely foreign, but actually antithetical to Scripture. Scripture is going to hold this sort of ethic of, uh, of community, of, of doing the work of theology uh, in the context of, uh, of community. And so ethical living is to be done in the midst of community, ethical thinking is to be done there as well. And so uh, you, are t- uh, you should be asking questions in community group. You should be a part of a community group. You should keep coming to theological equipping. You should start a little uh, Bible reading uh, group or a book reading group, email elders or staff or friends with questions and on and on. Ask others if something is right. You, you face this sort of ethical quandary ask others what their opinion is. Don't be so proud that you would think, I can figure this out on my own. That's a a fourth thing that you can do if you really want to prepare your heart uh, to to think ethically uh, or your mind to think ethically. Fifth, ask what the church has always believed uh, about this. Ask, what has the church always believed about this particular topic? So, tradition isn't always right, but the burden of proof is always on the side who wants to correct 2,000 years of history. There's a reason that when it comes to kind of our judicial heritage here in the US that you have this sort of tradition of presuming innocence until proven guilty. I'm not saying that always works in every case, but I think we can all agree that that's a good starting position. We wouldn't like the opposite to be true. We wouldn't like to, uh, for the courts to presume that you're guilty And then you have to therefore prove that you are innocent. And uh, so there's a reason uh, that we do that. Likewise with tradition, when it comes to any sort of new interpretation, whether knowingly or not, when you introduce some sort of new tradition, when you say, well, this is what I think about this passage, even though for 2,000 years that's not the way the church has understood this, what you were doing in that moment, whether you intend to or not, is you are accusing every single Christian who has come before you of being wrong on a particular topic. Now, you might be right. I think that Luther was more right than wrong whenever he corrects the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church in the Reformation, but the burden of proof is on, therefore, uh, on Luther to make the argument that he's actually uh, correct. And so, likewise, if you have this sort of new interpretation Yes, I know that this is what everyone around me thinks this passage means, but I think it means something different. The burden of proof is on you. And I think this is particularly relevant uh, in our context, where in the past 20 years, we've seen quote unquote evangelical Christians that have discarded 19 and a half centuries of uh, consistent teaching of the church on divorce and remarriage, on homosexuality. And, uh, and so forth. So, what has the church always believed about this? And anytime you want to go against that stream, the burden of proof is on you to make a compelling exegetical argument uh, for that thing. And so, one of the things that you can do to prepare yourself to think and live ethically is to be familiar with, uh, with your history and heritage. And then lastly, to prepare yourself to think ethically, ask what does lost secular culture think about this? What does lost secular culture think about this? For example, what do other religions, what do other worldviews say about this topic? Or what does Kim Kardashian say about this topic? What does Oprah say about this topic? What does Planned Parenthood say about this topic? What does the Church of Satan uh, say about this topic? Sometimes they look onto truth. All truth is God's truth, but your default position should be to suspect yourself of going astray when you find yourself tweeting the same things that Planned Parenthood tweets or Kim Kardashian or Oprah or whoever uh, it might be. So ask, what does lost secular culture think about this? They're not always wrong, but there should be a healthy level of skepticism and suspicion when you find yourself agreeing with them on, uh, uh, on topics of uh, ethics and, uh, and morality. So that's how you prepare yourself to think ethically. Let's get to the kind of the heart of the teaching, which are some principles to think uh, ethically. Principles to think ethically. This is not an exhaustive list, uh, and so if you were taking a class, you might have ten other examples uh, of things. This is just kind of a random list that I put together of things that I think as I look at uh, culture today, in particular evangelical culture, where it seems like Christians most misinterpret and misapply Uh, scripture. And again, you'll see a lot of it just flows directly uh, out of and overlaps with hermeneutics because uh, ethics and hermeneutics are uh, related. How to live flows naturally out of a discussion about how to think rightly or how to think biblically. So principles to think uh, ethically. How many do I have there? Seven-ish? Seven, yeah. First one, abuse doesn't negate correct use. Abuse doesn't negate correct use. I think you have the uh, Latin phrase that's used there, abusus non tolit usum, that abuse doesn't take away use. So, for example, the fact that some people might cheat on their spouse doesn't mean that what we should do is say, well, you could possibly cheat on your spouse, so we're going to take away marriage from everybody, right? Or the fact that some people speed and crash their cars doesn't mean, okay, no one can have a car, That's how a lot of us are wired to think, is that we think that just because something can be abused, therefore we take it away uh, from everyone. So let me give you where this is most applicable in uh, in our Christian context, and that's with the subject of, uh, of drinking. If we allow people to drink, they might get drunk, yes. But if we don't allow people to drink, if we hold people to a standard that is not God's standard. What's the result of that, that we're sinfully adding to God's Word? We have just simply traded one sin for uh, another sin. Or church, I was in a church, and I got hurt, so I'm not going to join a church again. Or I once shared my heart with someone, and they gossiped, so I'm not going to do that again. Or in regards to theology, I met this arrogant Calvinist, so Calvinism can't be true. Or I met this uh, person who believes something about the gifts of the Spirit, and they were super weird so that can't be true. Well, their beliefs might not be true, but simply the fact that they're weird doesn't mean that uh, isn't the evidence of that. And so abuse doesn't negate uh, correct use. That's one of the things that you need to watch out for. In the human heart, we tend to want to build walls. We see someone abuse something, and so we build a wall around that. And uh, and so we want to be careful that we don't uh, do that. A second one that we need to do principles to think ethically is we need to beware of, uh, of cliches. Beware of cliches. There is this tendency in Christian culture, uh, in Christian subculture, uh, if you will, there's this tendency to reduce things down to cliches. Now, cliches aren't always bad. Sometimes cliches are, uh, are true, but they can be very misleading at times whenever you think uh, that they represent uh, the full truth. So, you'll hear things like, when God closes one door, He opens another, except those times when he doesn't. He doesn't always open another door. Or you're never more safe than in God's will. But tell that to John the Baptist, or tell that to Jesus, or whatever it might be. Yes, if you have a a large eschatological understanding of what that means, but sometimes you're in God's will and you get killed. Or let go and let God. That's another sort of cliche thing. J.I. Packer heard that and he said, I think the better one is trust God and get going. Sanctification is this thing that takes work on our part, that the Bible tells us to work out our uh, salvation. Again, go back and listen to our sanctification talk, Or God helps those who help themselves. Again, cliches aren't necessarily bad. They just have a way of being accepted without critical engagement. So I'm not saying to never use cliches, but to make sure it fits the context and isn't uh, subtly misleading. So beware of, uh, of cliches. Beware of that tendency in your own heart to reduce uh, God's Word down to some sort of lowest common denominator and to uh, dilute the truth. A third one is to distinguish biblical distinctions. We talked about this uh, a few weeks back, uh, that the Bible is going to distinguish between unintentional sin and high-handed sin. Now, both of those are sin, but in the Old Testament, there is a difference between sin that is done unintentionally and sin that is done intentionally, sin that is done with a high hand, sin that is uh, basically shaking your fist at God, and uh, and so there is a difference between the two, and that means a few things. One, that has an implication on our cliche that all sins are equal. Uh, we wrote a blog about that. I think we're about to, to post it here in the next uh, couple of weeks. But uh, it also has an implication for simply not knowing God's will is not an excuse. Same way that if you get pulled over by a police officer and you didn't know that the speed limit was 30 because you didn't see a speed limit sign, but you're going 80. That's not an excuse. He's not going to say, I'll just let you off. And uh, so simply not knowing something uh, is not an excuse. So you need to be able to distinguish biblical distinctions. Let me give you a couple of practical examples that uh, that come into play, especially in, uh, in the world of uh, politics. So this will be a little... Uh, spicy. So there's a difference biblically between murder and killing. There's a difference between murder and uh, and killing. You might think of killing as this sort of a large circle circle K and then murder is this subset. So all mur- uh, all murder is killing, but not all killing is uh, is murder. And so this comes up all the time whenever you're uh, talking about uh, people who hold to this sort of uh, consistent pro-life ethic, they will call it, where, uh, yes, we're against abortion, but we're also against capital punishment, and we're also against all war, and we're also against all of these other things, as if the Bible is going to conflate those two things uh, together. The Bible, in fact, uses different words. In the Old Testament, there's a different word for murder than there is for righteous killing, justified killing. Whenever God commands the Israelites to conquer uh, Canaan, whenever uh, God commands Israel to put someone to death for blaspheming God or whatever it might be. And so all murder is killing, not all killing is murder. That's a distinction that we need to understand lest we conflate the two and therefore uh, uh, think unethically and, uh, and apply it incorrectly. Or likewise, when it comes to immigration, did you know that Scripture is going to distinguish Uh, between types of immigrants within Israel. That there are certain commands that are given toward uh, sojourners who have joined themselves fully to Israel. They have undergone circumcision. They have gone through all of the different processes there. And those who are simply just passing through, who have not made themselves a part of Israel. The Bible is going to distinguish that. So should that distinction somehow play into the way that we think of uh, immigration uh, today? I'm not going to answer those questions for you, but I would think that there is at least a chance that the way that the Scripture is going to distinguish those two uh, should help inform the way that we think of immigration uh, today. This also brings up all these questions of whether or not something is a command for the church or the state uh, or the individual, because we confuse those all the time. So one of the things that we need to do in order to think ethically and live ethically is to distinguish what the Bible is going to distinguish Another one is to beware of le- uh, legalism and license. Beware of legalism and, uh, and license. That's one of the quickest ways to think and live unethically. Those of us who are prone uh, to uh, license need to remember that the goal is not to get as close to sin as possible, like a teenager kind of asking how far is too far, or, uh, or you thinking how much interaction can I have with this coworker? That I find attractive before it becomes uh, inappropriate. The goal is to flee sin, not to stand right on the edge uh, of it. That sin, that said, uh, the, uh, those given to legalism need to remember that staying away from sin doesn't mean staying away from things that could co- possibly become sin. As we talked about, the human heart is like the Pharisees, where it wants to build walls around God's law, and we don't want to uh, do that. So, if, uh, if your kind of rule of faith is to reject anything that could lead you to sin, then that doesn't just simply stop at TV or alcohol or whatever it might be. But then you got to get rid of money, you got to get rid of food, and all those kind of things because those can also lead uh, to sin. So those of us who grew up, uh, went through some form of uh, debauchery and partying, we tend to lean into to legalism as a security blanket for us. That's comfortable for us because we've gone through some sort of period of debauchery. And so we want to cling to legalism as if it uh, is somehow pleasing to God. Those of us who grew up in a more legalistic sort of background, we want to throw that off completely and uh, tend to reject it in favor of license, and yet neither is good. Legalism is not safer than license. License is not better than legalism. Neither pleases God. Both are forms of bondage. So we need to beware of both license and legalism. A fifth principle for us is that we are not to trust our feelings. We're not to trust our feelings. Talked about this a little bit last week with the uh, just the, kind of the 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 ethical theory of moral relativism. Ba- that basic, basically all ethical categories, uh, all ethical theories, fall into a category either of relativism or absolutism. That is truth uh, relative and subjective, or is it absolute and objective? And most of our culture today is moving away from the view that uh, truth is something that is objective, truth is something that is absolute and stands over all of us in favor of this sort of relativistic, sort of embrace your truth. Sounds very sort of Oprah-esque, that we speak our truth. But Christians, the Bible doesn't speak our truth or a truth, it speaks the truth. And, uh, And so you can't trust your own heart. So, if you find yourself at this sort of precipice and you're wondering, you find yourself at this uh, this precipice of not knowing what is the ethical decision, what's the moral decision, what's the right decision and the wrong decision, and you find your heart inclining, uh, inclining one way or another, the Bible would say, don't trust your heart in that moment. Again, that's the importance of reading the Bible and doing so in the context of community, asking others what uh, they think that you should do. So, uh, asking yourself, what's influencing your will? In that moment where you find yourself inclining toward this position and saying, I think I should do this. Why do you think you should do this? Is it because that's what God's Word actually says, or is it because it's more convenient or more comfortable for you or whatever uh, it, uh, it might uh, be? And so sometimes this is really easy for us to decipher. Sometimes it's really easier for us to decipher in this moment, is this my flesh or is this really God? When you find yourself asking the question or whenever you find yourself kind of feeling like god is leading me to marry this person who has no evident love for jesus or his bride or you feel like i really feel like god is leading me to get a divorce for irreconcilable differences or i really feel like disciplining my child is bad for their ego it's really easy in those moments just to read the scriptures and say your feelings are wrong But what about whenever you find yourself at a a point where you think, I really feel like God is calling me to leave my church or really feel like I should move my family to a new city or really feel like I should get a bigger house or whatever it might be. Well, maybe, but maybe not. So how do you know? Again, community. Having surrounding ourselves, not with people who are just simply yes men or yes women, but people who love you enough to know your tendencies, to press you on those things. So don't trust your feelings, but lean in. Uh, to Scripture and uh, in the context of community. Sixth, beware of pragmatism and utilitarianism. You might remember those uh, from last week. Two ethical uh, theories: pragmatism is kind of the idea that truth is measured by what works. Whatever works is therefore true and right and uh, and good. Utilitarianism is whatever brings the most pleasure ultimately is is right. So, kind of the end justifies. Uh, the means. For instance, I'm going to marry this unbeliever so that he uh, or she might get uh, saved. But Let me give you a, a really complex ethical situation involving both pragmatism and utilitarianism. This is the, the part of the lesson where you get to sort of engage your own uh, uh, mind and think through some of these issues uh, together. So, let's take the issue of IVF. What's IVF? in vitro uh, fertilization, right? And so that is whenever you take an egg from a woman and uh, you take sperm from a man and uh, you combine them together uh, in some sort of laboratory settings and then you implant the fertilized embryo back into uh, the uterus. And uh, so we can talk about the various ethical things. If you have questions about that, feel free to, uh, to email Dr. Steve. He's a doctor, so he'll take it. Uh, but... Uh, I want to deal with just a couple of scenarios. I think, I think, in and of itself, IVF doesn't uh, present uh, ethical ethical difficulties. Uh, there are some issues related to IVF and the way that it can be practiced that does present some uh, some really hard ethical decisions. And so, I want to talk about those. And so, before we begin, let's imagine this: imagine that you are talking with some friends at uh, at work tomorrow and uh, they said uh, you know what'd you do this weekend you talk about i went to church one of the things that went to the church went to this uh teaching and uh, and they talked about ivf and uh, and your friend uh says um what right does a man have to tell you what you can do with your own body right what does that do what's that a denial of I heard words, but I didn't get the words. It's a denial of sufficiency of Scripture. We talked about this before, that uh, you don't have to be a 40-year-old white man in order to correct and rebuke me, right? That truth stands above all of us, and, uh, and so it's a denial of sufficiency of Scripture. Or what if your friend counseled you to just do what is right? Whatever feels right, whatever feels good regarding IVF, you can just simply do that, kind of embrace your own truth. What is that an example of? Subjectivism, moral relativism, right? Or what if your doctor says, let's go ahead and we'll fertilize 12 eggs, even though we'll only implant one, and the other 11 we can just freeze because that's more cost-effective. What is that? That's utilitarianism. That's pragmatism uh, as well, right? We're making a, a decision on the basis of what makes the most economic sense, Not what makes the most ethical sense. That's like saying we can save a little bit of money if we just potentially commit a little bit of murder. Or what about let's implant all 12, even though we know your body will reject the overwhelming majority of them. Your body can't support 12, but we're going to implant all 12 of them. What, What kind of thinking is that? It's the same. It's pragmatism and utilitarianism. There's more pleasure in the one kid that you'll get from that potentially than in the loss of 10 or 11 other lives. Or there's this crazy company that I saw, I think it's out of uh, New Zealand or Australia, that takes any sort of embryos that you don't implant and, uh, and makes jewelry out of, uh, out of them. Again, that's utilitarianism, that you get more pleasure in carrying around this than the pain that is experienced by destroying uh, this life. So again, not saying that all forms of IVF are bad. Don't hear me say that. I'm not saying IVF is bad. I'm saying the vast the the way that the overwhelming majority of of doctors and of our culture thinks of IVF is through these lens of pragmatism or utilitarianism. So in other words, even in situations where there's ethical freedom, like IVF, which can be a really good God glorifying righteous technology. There are these ethical boundaries that the Bible would have, that the Bible doesn't forbid the practice in and of itself, but uh, we don't simply stop there. We ask, how do we leverage that technology in a way that doesn't uh, demean and devalue God's Word? And so, uh, beware of pragmatism and utilitarianism. And then lastly, beware of injustice in the guise of justice. Beware of injustice in the guise of justice. Here's what I want to do just for this section as we uh, wrap up for the sake of time. I want to read a few passages of Scripture, and then I just want you to think for a moment. I want you to think of how these texts might critique uh, our current culture, even evangelical culture in some instances, of what justice actually entails. By the way, I've started reading a proverb a day. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't see a major critique of something that I see on Facebook or on, uh, on Twitter. I don't have Facebook, but my wife has Facebook on Twitter, on CNN, or Fox News, or whatever it might be. And, uh, and so, I want to read some passages, and I just want you to think about the way that this challenges the way that our culture thinks today. Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to, defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. There's dozens of other texts I could have read that talk about not showing partiality or preference. What does partiality mean? Literally, uh, that word in, uh, in Greek and Hebrew, it literally means to look upon the face, to look upon the face. We've talked about this before. This is why justice is uh, historically portrayed as a woman that's wearing a blindfold. In other words, she doesn't see faces, she sees facts. That's what justice is concerned with, not faces, but facts. So the application of this passage that we should not prefer one or the other, you don't prefer the rich, but you don't swing the pendulum the other way and therefore say, okay, therefore we're going to prefer the poor. You don't prefer men, but you don't swing the pendulum the other way and say, we're going to prefer women. You don't prefer whites, but you don't swing the pendulum the other way and say, therefore we're going to give preference to minorities, whatever it might be. So any, call, any form of so-called justice That gives any sense of priority or preference on the basis of gender or race or socioeconomic policy is actually injustice. You're just trading one injustice for another, and that's not the goal, as if that's actually better. Another passage, Proverbs 18.13, think about how this would be applicable in our context and culture. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. So again, you could probably think of an example of something you see on the news or on Twitter or on Facebook, whatever it might be, whether that's from conservative sources or liberal sources. This is not some sort of a a commentary on uh, the types of media or whatever it might be. This is just the way our media works. If one gives an answer before he hears it, it is his folly and shame. Or Proverbs 18, 17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So again, justice demands that we suspend judgment until we can ascertain facts and not just uh, rely upon our feelings. Or Proverbs 17.15, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. We preached uh, that text when we did Proverbs in 2017. So, Uh, all kinds of examples of sexual assault allegations or police shootings or whatever uh, it might be that you automatically are going to side with the police or automatically going to side with the victim or you're going to automatically side uh, with the person who brings the sexual assault allegation or you're going to automatically think that they are lying or whatever it might be. And the Bible is going to say, don't automatically assume one or the other. Wait here, beware of assumptions. Don't retreat into politics or camps. Our goal should always be to find uh, the truth. So here's the deal. With a lot of these sort of principles, a lot of these things sound right. It sounds loving to say that because poor people have been oppressed in the past, that we should turn around and let the rich have it for a bit. It sounds loving to do a little evil. If good is ultimately going to result, you just do a little bit of evil, and then all this overwhelming good, or to do what is most practical or efficient, or to listen to your heart, or to believe all women, or to believe all men, or whatever it might be. In other words, what our culture and even what evangelical culture has done is to largely say, do what's loving, but then hasn't allowed Scripture to define what is and is not uh, loving. And, uh, and so, at the end of the day, when we talk about ethics, it doesn't really matter if you can uh, kind of define utilitarianism or define pragmatism or if you're able to quote Aristotle or Kant or whatever it might be, that's not the goal. The goal is that you can identify falsehood. I want to end with this illustration since I love talking about uh, snakes, uh, apparently. Uh, Imagine that all truth claims are kind of like a snake, all right? Some are venomous, some are non-venomous. None are poisonous. If you ever say that there's a poisonous snake, that's not true. They're venomous. Uh, Some are venomous, some are not venomous. Um, But uh, imagine that you're out in the field and you come across a snake. What do you need to know about that snake? You need to know whether it's venomous or not venomous. You don't really need to know if that particular snake is a copperhead or that particular snake is a cottonmouth or that particular snake is a coral snake. By the way, all of those are venomous. But you do need to know if that one is venomous or if it is non-venomous. Likewise, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if you can distinguish or or you can define pragmatism and utilitarianism and you can define moral subjectivism or moral relativism or you can quote Aristotle or Kant or whatever it it might be, but it does matter that you can distinguish truth from falsehood. If you can distinguish a venomous claim from a non-venomous claim, that is the goal of ethics. The goal of ethics is that you can be able to look and to see this is actually untrue. And if I embrace this thing that is untrue, it's going to bite me, and that bite is more than just going to cause blood. It's actually going to infect me and affect the way that I think and the way that I live in a way that does not glorify God and does not lead to my ultimate joy. So that's the goal uh, of ethics. So I don't know if we have any questions, but I'm going to have Zachary come up, and uh, we will tackle whatever questions you might have. Or if you don't have any, he'll do a stand-up routine that he's been memorizing. I've
1: been working on it for a long time, <laughs> although I think it might get me fired. Okay, so let's, uh, let's go through some of these questions. Thank you for texting in your questions. We figured this was a better way to use the time just because we can answer the maximum amount of questions. The first one is this, question the first, sent in by Anonymous from Kentucky. How would you respond to those who say that they personally are ethically opposed to something but don't think there should be laws against it, whether it be abortion, homosexual marriage, etc.? So, do you want me to jump in or you want That's to good. jump in? I mean, you've got the face mic, so.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll start on this one. So, I've heard, I've heard uh, people, I've heard politicians, as if they're not people. Uh, I've heard pastors, as if they're not people say we can't legislate morality, that's all that you legislate, right? That's what you're legislating, you're legislating morality. And uh, so the question is, is this an, a, an, uh, an issue of morality that is important enough to legislate? I don't think that you should legislate all morality. Uh, I don't think that, uh, that every single thing that is ethical and unethical that you should therefore uh, make some sort of a law about, but I absolutely believe that we should legislate uh, morality. That's what killing is, right? That's laws against murder. Is legislating morality? Not all cultures believe that murder is wrong. There are certain cultures that believe that murder can be a good thing. Uh, in fact, there is a uh, there's one culture where um, the goal is to deceive people and to kill them, and uh, and so. Uh, so I think that uh, we absolutely should uh, legislate morality, and so that would be where I would begin. Would would be to correct that sort of misunderstanding, and and to say if you are morally opposed to something, then you there you should therefore uh, do everything in your power in order to eradicate uh, whatever that thing is. So that's what I'd begin with.
1: Yeah. So I I think another good question to uh, to ask is: Do you believe that God's commands in the Bible are for the good of everyone, or just for the good of Christians? Are God's commands for our joy and for our good for everyone, or is it just for Christians? And my view is that God's commands are good for everyone. So not cheating on your wife leads to more joy in the long run, whether you're a Christian or not. Not stealing leads to more joy in the long run, whether you're a Christian or not. So if you believe that the Bible is God's word and that these commands are ultimately for our joy and good, then yes, you should try to enact uh, righteousness. That's what you do as, uh, uh, as Christian voters. Uh, our job is not to completely exclude religion in the public sphere, nor is it to start a state church like in uh, England where you have the Church of England or in Germany where you have evangelical churches that are the official state church. Rather, it's to have a significant Christian influence when it comes to politics. And so there is no, like Jeff just said, there's no such thing as not legislating morality. The question is, whose morality will you legislate? Will you legislate Christian morality or will you legislate secular immorality? And so I don't ever think you can say, I personally don't like this, but I'm going to try to put someone into office who's completely against my position. That doesn't make any sense. That's like saying, I personally am against killing Jews, but I'm going to vote for Hitler. That doesn't work. You are your vote. Uh, who you try to put in office Uh, part of whatever they do in office, if they've said they're going to do it, part of that falls back on you. And that's whether you're on the left or on the right politically. So just know uh, you will be held accountable before God for everything you do, including your voting. And so, but the one view I think you can't take as a Christian is to say, I'm personally against this, but I think it would be great if I tried to enact it in society and society didn't have to follow God's laws. So the Bible doesn't let you split. There is no separation of church and state for you as a Christian. Okay. And so I would keep that in mind with that, uh, that question. So Next, I realize I have the questions, so I have to read them each time. Okay. Next, Uh, Jeff talked about how it is important to read and interpret the Bible well and to have a good knowledge of Christian history in order to think through ethical dilemmas. Are there any resources you could give uh, regarding how to learn about Christian history or how to read the Bible and get the most out of it? So maybe just some helpful resources, Jeffrey, on uh, hermeneutics and uh, church history.
0: Yeah, so we have a... uh we have a sheet that is how to study the Bible. Um, we still have that somewhere. Uh, Tim knows where that is. It's somewhere. Uh, he's the, he's you see the, Tim afterwards. Just ask the, him personally. He's, the, he's the got a big stack of, of them back there. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and we've also done that here in Theological Equipping. So we've talked a little bit about how to study the Bible. So you can get online. You can listen to that. You can grab that, uh, that sheet. And, uh, and that would give you a good uh, kind of helpful uh, place to start. Um, so I would begin there. And, uh, and then there's all kinds of resources that I'd recommend as far as uh, knowing just the basics uh, of history. One of the things that we try to do here in this, this uh, class is to walk through some of those things. So we've walked through uh, how did, uh, in 325 AD, how did the church gather together at Nicaea and come up with uh, kind of what the Bible says as far as the, the boundaries of Trinitarianism. Uh, and in 451 A.D., how does the church come together and kind of wrestle through the issue of the hypostatic union at Chalcedon or Chalcedon and uh, and come up with the doctrine of the deity and the humanity of Christ and what, what the Bible says about that. So, one of the things that we're trying to do is bring out some of those things. As far as a uh, a book, there's a a book that… You're reading with some guys on a short kind of primer on history, isn't it? What's that called?
1: Yeah, so I'll I'll give you one for each of these, and there's more. There are a lot of good resources on these, but I'll just give you one right now for each of these. If you want to know more about church history, there is a short one. Well, I say short. With church history, what I mean by that is it's not (laughs) multi-volume. It's one volume, and it's called Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. The reason it's so helpful is because it doesn't just give you a bunch of dates like you had to memorize in school. It treats church history like a big story. That's why it's really helpful. So it's called Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. And then a really helpful book uh, that would just be kind of a one volume on how to interpret the Bible came out a few years ago. It's called 40 Questions on Interpreting the Bible. And so each, there's 40 different chapters, but they're real short. They're like a page and a half. And each one of them will answer a question. How do I interpret parables? How do I interpret prophecy? Uh, where did we get the Bible? Why do we use these manuscripts? All of that. So 40 questions on interpreting the Bible. And that is by a guy named Rob Plummer, who's a professor at Southern. And then the other one, Bruce Shelley, uh, on church history and plain language. So.
0: One other resource that you might just add to your library is the ESV Study Bible. There's various ESV study Bibles. There's a Reformation study Bible, and uh, I don't, there's a couple of others. But there's one that's just called the ESV study Bible. Uh, it has a number of helpful articles in the back on uh, how to study the Bible, how to interpret Scripture, uh, those sort of things. It has uh, an entire chapter on uh, on ethics uh, in the back in the supplemental resources. But in addition, it kind of just has a running commentary. And, uh, and so if you want to just know this passage, what does it in general mean? And, uh, and I would say 99% of the time, uh, they're going to align really well with where we would align uh, on those subjects. So ESV Study Bible would just be a good resource to have in your uh, library.
1: Okay, we'll do, let's do uh, maybe two more. I've got one uh, somewhat easier one and then the hardest one we can do last uh-huh. that I assume Brian probably sent, okay. Uh, my eight-year-old wanted to talk to his grandfather about a sin he saw his grandfather committing. I told him that wasn't his place to do that. Being a child, was I wrong to do that? So, okay, I'll start with that one. Uh, No, you were not wrong to do that. Uh, That is right to do. So let let me distinguish two things. Uh, When we say that truth stands over everyone equally, what that means is if your eight year old is saying something true to his grandfather, the grandfather should listen to it, ideally, because truth stands over everybody regardless of age, right? If someone is single, and you're being mean to your wife and they come up to you and say, stop being mean to your wife, you can't say, what do you know about being married? You're just single. They're right. You always have to listen to who's right. Okay, we're Protestants after all. The uh, the plowboy who's correctly interpreting the New Testament holds more power and authority than the Pope, okay? And so, uh, so keep that in mind. I think the other thing that this question gets into, though, is, is it that kid's responsibility, or is that the best way to approach it? It's not that kid's responsibility, and that's not the best way to approach it. So if someone's in sin, like let's say someone's in sin here in our congregation— they should take truth from whoever gives them truth, but because our hearts are sinful and because we default towards subjectivism, we will often ask ourselves, if we're thinking through an issue, who would be the best person to bring this up to this person so that they might hear it? So be wise. Try to win over the person. So the, the point is, is that you have to hear truth regardless of who it comes from, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be wise and figure out who's the best person to deliver this truth, and it's not probably going to be uh, the, uh, the eight-year-old. So no, I don't think you were wrong to do that. Any thoughts on that, Jeffrey?
0: yeah i mean I, I would just say um you know as a as a general strategy i would I would agree with that in terms of it's probably not the best uh opportunity for the eight year old to do that I would also say that there are probably times where it would be appropriate so if a uh you know a, a grandparent is a member of the same church and uh you know their faith and all that kind of stuff and then they were to say a you know an inappropriate word in the context of the kid, I think the kid could say you know Grandpa, Grandma, why did you use that word or something like that? So I would say there, there might be exceptions where the, the kid would have every right to, uh, to say something. But uh, in general, it's probably not going to go well.
1: Just teach your kids to start crying when their grandpa sins around them. and It'll uh, solve that real fast. Okay, last one. This is a tricky ethical one. A trolley is headed down a track and is going to kill two people tied to it, but you could pull the lever, there's only one lever I'm assuming here, so this is difficult, and divert the trolley to kill only one person tied to the track. Should you pull the lever, which would kill a person who wasn't going to die to save two people who would have died had you not acted, okay?
0: Jeffrey. <laughs> yeah. You know, You're going to start with that one or not? Uh, You're the one who brought up all the complex uh, ethical things last week, so I think you start.
1: Okay, I'll start. So, by the way, just as a quick note, Tim does have those little study sheets in the back. He actually just ran and got some. If you want some of those how to study the Bible sheets that we made, I think Jeff uh, worked on those a while back. Um, Okay, let let me separate something real quick. Last week, we talked about this scenario. You're part of a SEAL team, hoorah, and uh, you're going in to kill some terrorists, and uh, there's a little shepherd boy that stumbles upon your team, and if you don't kill that little boy, he's going to go tell the terrorist, they're going to get away and go kill a bunch of people, or you can murder the child, and yeah, one person dies, and then you're able to go in and kill a terrorist and protect a bunch of people at the end. Y'all remember that scenario that we talked about? That's the, from the movie Lone Survivor, or the book Lone Survivor, if you, uh, if you read it. Now, this scenario that was just given about the trolley is completely unlike that. Okay. The reason being is in the trolley scenario, you don't have an option. So what, what I mean is this. If I don't kill the kid and terrorists get away and terrorists go kill people, I'm not responsible for that. I am not called to stop sin if the only way I can stop sin is to sin myself. Okay. That's different than the trolley scenario. In the trolley scenario, somebody is going to die and I've, I guess, been put here by a terrorist on this trolley and I'm duct taped and all these kinds of things. You need to know you're never going to be in the trolley scenario. That's not a real-life thing where you have to sin. But in that case, you would probably divert the trolley and only kill the one person instead of the two. Now, not because that person's life is less valuable. It's not pragmatism. In that case, because people are already going to die at your hand, then you would want it to be less. In the lone survivor case, that's different because you're not murdering the people if the terrorists get away. The terrorists are. Okay? So there is a big difference. If somebody puts a gun to my head and says, Zach, if you don't shoot this child, I'm going to kill 10 people and I say I'm not gonna shoot the child, I have not killed those 10 people. The terrorist has, okay? That's not on me. That's different than if I'm literally on this railroad track and you're, the scenario basically is, do you kill two people or kill one? Well, you kill one, but it's not a pragmatic reasoning. It's not because two is more valuable than one. Everybody has equal value in God's sight. Rather, it's just because you've set up a weird trolley scenario. <laughs> so, other thoughts on that? Or maybe not? No, it's good. Okay. <laughs> I wish that they would have put something like that on, like, Mr. Rogers, like, uh, they help kids think ethically, and they've got t- puppets tied, but okay. Jeff, you want to uh, pray for us?
0: Yeah. Okay. Father, thank you for uh, your word, and uh, thank you for uh, the, the gift that you've given us of community, of others that have thought through ethical situations that we can uh, uh, learn from and glean from, and, uh, and I pray that you would help us, Lord, that you would help us to have a passion for uh, thinking clearly that we might uh, live uh, rightly uh, before You. And uh, and so our uh, ultimate hope is not in the way that we live, it's in the way that Your Son has lived and, uh, and died for us and for our sin, and yet You have called us to lives of holiness and righteousness and uh, to do justice and uh, pursue truth and love and all of those kinds of things. And so I pray that You would help us, Lord, that You would help us to uh, discern how to walk before you uh, with, uh, with integrity. And, uh, and so we're grateful for uh, your love for us. We're grateful for an opportunity for us to go forth from here and to gather together as the church and to sing and to pray and to uh, hear your word and to encourage each other and to be encouraged. And so I pray for those of us who are uh, timid, that uh, we might be helped for those of us who are uh, discouraged today, that we might be encouraged for those of us who are uh, walking in pride or arrogance, that we would be convicted, and on and on we could go. Lord, would your Spirit move among us just in the uh, uh, various ways that uh, are necessary for us. And so we love you. You're a good Father who gives good gifts. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.